0: First of all, a warm welcome to everybody, and particularly to people who are joining us for the conference today. It's good to see everybody here. And uh, our sessions today begin with an address by Dr. Gary Williams on the uh, human person as in the Puritans, up to and including Jonathan Edwards. It's, uh, Gary is the director of the John Owen Centre. I first came across him, I'd never heard of him before, but some 10 or 12 years ago, my good friend John Marshall handed me uh, a lecture, or I think a paper he'd given on the theology of Rowan Williams. asked me to review it for the Banner of Truth. And uh, I, I thought, well, this man is a man to know and uh, I never thought that uh, we should uh, be working in the same institution together but it's, uh, Gary is the coordinator of this conference, he directs the affairs of the John Owen Centre and uh, we are profoundly thankful to him for all the work which he does for us. Now before I ask him to come and speak, uh, we'll... um, read the word of god and we do so from the gospel according to John chapter 20 uh, chapter 17 verse 20 John's gospel chapter 17 verse 20 to the end we hear the word of god i do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, The world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let us pray. Almighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow in your most holy presence to worship you, to acknowledge your greatness and your glory, and your rich grace toward us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given your own Son to be our Saviour, and as we draw near to you, we plead once again his blood and his merit as the only ground of our access into your presence. We thank you, O God, that we, though sinful, weak, frail, foolish, are able to come to the living God, and that in your love and your mercy you deal with us in grace, that you speak to us, you enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit, you lead us into the truth. We pray, O God, that you will draw near to us in this session and indeed in the remaining sessions of this conference that we may be conscious of your presence that not only may our minds be informed but may the truth take possession of our hearts. May we be subject to your truth. May we be those who are willing, obedient servants who are concerned above everything else for the glory and the honour of your great and holy name. We thank you for our brother Gary Williams and for the abilities which you have given him and we ask that your good hand will be upon him as he speaks to us this morning. Give us receptive minds and hearts and grant that our discussion may be profitable under your blessing for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.
1: Psychology with the Puritans. Please would you dismiss immediately from your minds the connotations of the term psychology. Rats, shrinks, couches, your inner child, I trust you've discovered him, reliving the experience of your own birth, I intend the term here in its etymological sense, that is to say we're speaking about the human life and the human soul. Our main conversation partners as we turn to the Puritans will be, of course, John Owen together with Jonathan Edwards. Now, that is slightly controversial. Owen obviously counts as a Puritan. I would argue that Edwards is the Puritan of Puritans, even though he is chronologically and geographically distinct from the rest of the Puritans, although he was technically, of course, we must remember and insist, an Englishman. Uh,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: we will see that it was in his treatise concerning religious affections that the Puritan psychology reached its clearest form but there are those who would challenge that claim Perry Miller who wrote uh, a very significant biography of Edwards um, it is a, a biography which is at once brilliantly written and deeply flawed um, I remember I uh, Actually, I don't remember, because I probably wasn't born at the time. But I I have read uh, that A.J.P. Taylor, the great historian, commented on Hugh Trevor Roper, the other great historian, despite the small blip over the Hitler diaries, um, uh, commented that when he read one of Trevor Roper's essays, tears of envy stood in his eyes. And uh, that's how I feel about Perry Miller, really. He writes fantastically, but the biography is deeply, deeply flawed at the same time in its account of Edward's. One of his views is that Edwards was an innovator in his understanding of the human person and broke from the Puritan tradition. Now, I'm not going to go into that at great length because it would get very detailed and uh, probably slightly dull, uh, but hopefully as we go and as I weave together some Owen and some Edwards, you will see how at very significant points they're speaking with one mind and that what Edwards is doing is clarifying and refining a tradition rather than ditching it and starting a new one. Uh, So that's a sort of side purpose. Of this paper. One very interesting point of comparison between them is their situations and common features of their contexts. We're probably familiar with some of the pressures on Edwards if we know his story. He was concerned to defend the Great Awakening against some of its detractors. Uh, on the one side, uh, those who uh, criticized it, uh, who were really rationalists. On the other side, those who uh, favored all of the excess that could be involved. In the awakening, and he was really trying to uh, navigate a course between those two positions. On the one hand, the rationalists, represented by Charles Chauncey, the first minister of Boston, of the first church in Boston. On the other hand, someone like James Davenport, an itinerant uh, preacher, evangelist, endorsing all of the excesses uh, that occurred when he uh, began his roving ministry from 1741. So Edward was trying to find biblical criteria. Uh, for those, oh, that kind of uh, affection which could be known to be genuine. He wanted to say, how do we know uh, what true religious experience is, what true affection is, and how we distinguish it uh, from false experience, or even, uh, as is often the case, how do we uh, identify those things which could be genuine, but might equally not be. Quite a lot of the things he discusses, he says that this could be a, a genuine thing, but it's not a definite sign that this is a genuine affection. Um, And so he was trying to narrow that down. Now, Owen, interestingly, had a similar context, and this may be less familiar to us. He found himself opposed by those who uh, thought that the outward evidence of conversion that he favoured was really just enthusiasm. And enthusiasm, of course, in church history is a negative term. Uh, We tend to think that being enthusiastic is a good thing. If we had some enthusiastic people in our congregations, we'd be delighted. But no, you really don't want enthusiasm um, in the past. And uh, so Owen, interestingly, was dealing with people who thought that his position was the position of enthusiasm. He wrote this. This whole doctrine, with all the declarations and applications of it, is now, by some among ourselves, derided and exposed to scorn, although it be known to have been the constant doctrine of the most learned prelates of the Church of England. And as the doctrine is exploded, so all experience of the work itself in the souls of men is decried as fanatical and enthusiastical. This is when he's writing uh, in his book on the Holy Spirit. So criticism of enthusiasm didn't only come as a reaction to the revivals, interestingly. And Owen and Edwards were dealing with a similar challenge from a more rationalist position, which suggests perhaps a, a similar concern for them. Now, with that common context clear, what I want to do now is to give you nine uh, propositions, a nine-point synthesis of some of the most significant elements of the Puritan psychology. And hopefully you have a copy of them. If you don't have a copy of the nine propositions, stick a hand up, and somebody, well, a few people who didn't come from outside the building may be lacking them, because I think you have got them when you came in that door. If you keep your hands up, somebody will bring you nine propositions. Uh, this is the point at which what I'm saying could m- be most vulnerable to attack from a, a, a historian. Um, Carl Truman's in my mind at the moment. Um, you know, uh, taking up teaching from the past and using it synthetically in the present. Um, but we're going to plough on anyway um, and, uh, and do that uh, uh, shamelessly, really, because I think we need to do that with things from the past. But be aware that this is a slightly artificial synthesis Uh, of propositions drawn from people living in different centuries. Okay, so just there's my caveat, my insurance policy. Um, Should anyone object? Everyone got one. And you'll also need a diagram if you've not got the. That might also mean they haven't got the diagram, David, if that's... uh, Brilliant, thank you. Proposition number one. The believer's affection of love for God rests on the prototype of God's own prior Trinitarian love rests on the prototype of God's own prior Trinitarian love. We begin with Owen, who begins with the triune God himself. In Christologia, he makes the profoundly important point that the Christian affection of love begins within the Godhead. Here's how he puts it. No small part of the eternal blessedness of the holy God consisteth in the mutual love of the Father and the Son by the Spirit. As he is the only begotten of the Father... He is the first, necessary, adequate, complete object of the whole love of the Father. Interestingly, Owen explains that the love uh, of the Father for the Son is twofold. And he distinguishes between the love of the Father for the Son as God, on the one hand, and the love of the Father for the Son as incarnate, on the other So the Father loves the Son as God, and the Son as God loves the Father with a natural, necessary love, with an absolute necessity. That love is always and must always be. This love occurs, Owen explains, within God. It is a love ad intra, on the inside of God, if you like. Because the Son loves the Father, he writes of whom he was begotten in the entire communication of the whole divine nature. Now what does that mean? What that means is that the father loves the son in his act of begetting him. And that the son loves the father as the father who begets him. And it's interesting that Owen clearly takes the view here that the father-son relation is a relation in which the father begets the son as God in his nature. Not just the son as son as person, which is what Calvin argues in the Institutes. You can pick up on that in questions if you want to pursue it. So the key point is this. Uh, In the eternal begetting and being begotten, the Father and the Son, God is love. And that love is necessary. But the Father's love for the Son as the God-man, as incarnate, differs in this regard. Given that the humanity of the Son is created, The father's love for him is a love, Owen says, ad extra, outside of God, outside of himself. And at this point you might be thinking, oh, um, that sounds disastrous, doesn't it? That sounds rather dubious. Uh, Well, let's clarify what he means. If we took Owen to mean that the father has a love for, in loving the son as the God-man, for a person outside of God then that would be wrong, and indeed it would be heretical. Because the God-man, the incarnate Christ, would then be a person, apart from the eternal Son, uh, loved outside of the Godhead. And that would indeed be a heresy, that would be Nestorianism. Owen doesn't mean that. So what does he mean by this idea of uh, the Father's love for the Son being a love ad extra, outside of God? He means that the humanity of God the Son, which is, His humanity, in which he, the single divine person, now exists, is a fully human and therefore created reality. And in this sense, the Father's love for the Son is a love ad extra. Not love to a new person, that would be Nestorianism, but to the same divine person in a new, created nature. So that it is love outside of God considered naturally, in terms of nature, not considered personally. It's the same person he loves, but he now loves him in a new created nature. So Owen thus teaches in this subtle and distinguished way that love begins in God. I guess our next question would be, well then, how does it come to us from God? What is our point of connection? If there is this eternal Trinitarian love, how are we connected? What's that got to do with us? And Owen finds his answer in John 17, verse 26, which is why we have that passage read. The Lord Jesus asks the Father that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And Owen explains. He writes, the love of the body is derived unto it from the love unto the head. And in the love of him does God love the whole church and no otherwise. He loves none but as united unto him and participant of his nature. In other words, the intra-Trinitarian love is the source of God's love for the church because Christ is the head of the church as the father loves the head, Christ, so his love embraces Christ's body, the church. And we are caught up in the father's love for his son. And therefore, for Owen, God is not only the one we love. He is first the one from whom love comes. He is the source of all love and, he will explain, is also the goal of all love. He puts it like this all spiritual things do proceed from and are resolved into an infinite fountain of goodness. You see the idea of outflow and return. Love comes from God, love is returned to God. And Owen believes that this is the very reason that God made the world. Why did God make the world? As an expression of his own love, of that triune love. Here's how he puts it. For God's love of himself, which is natural and necessary unto the divine being, consists in the mutual complacency of the Father and the Son by the Spirit, and it was to express himself that God made anything without himself, anything outside of himself. So he made things to express who he is, as the triune God, as the loving God. And this is where we find the roots then of our love in that eternal prior initiating love of God. I hope you can see at that point there are all sorts of really obvious but significant applications that you could make of that truth and at the end I'm going to draw four applications from all of this material Um, but no doubt there are others that we might want to draw out in questions as well but um, there are all sorts of issues there in terms of our understanding of how we are loved and and what it means for somebody who's known love, no love uh, to be loved and to understand how they relate to Christ and how God's love for them is his love for the Son and those kinds of things so we might want to come back to that later Second proposition, love is central to the Christian life and therefore the affections are central because love is an affection. We can see why, given the emphasis on love, uh, for Owen and Fred Woods, um, the affections are important and we can see why love is important when we understand their doctrine of God. So you can see the connections there. You go from affection to love and from love to who God is. And indeed Owen gives... Uh, love a preeminent place in the soul love he says is the most ruling and prevalent affection in the whole soul, it's the kind of thing we think of Edwards saying but Owen says it very clearly because of its constant exercise he explains love is the spring unto all other affections so it lies at the heart of the affections Edwards agrees, Christian love he says is the fountain of all gracious affections so here's an example where they're saying the same thing And Owen uh, is not being betrayed by Edwards when he emphasises love. And if, then, love is central to the Christian life, affection is central, because love is an affection. In fact, for Owen, spiritual affections are the the peculiar spring and substance of our being spiritually minded. In his great book on spiritual mindedness... um, the, the affections are at the centre of his account of the Christian life. It's, you come to it, and, and if you read Edwards first, it's, it's very much like reading Edwards. In fact, Owen says, really at the end of the day, affection is God, what God wants from us. It's what he requires of us. The great contest of heaven and earth is about the affections of the poor worm which we call man, he says. This is what the great battle is about. It's about man's affections. It is our affections he asketh for, and comparatively, nothing else, he says. Conversely, just as God seeks our affections, so does the devil. That's what the world is after, seeking to capture our affections. All the paint the world puts on its face, he says, is to win the affections of men. So certainly, Edwards was not the inventor of the idea of the priority of the affections, when he likewise stated that true religion in great part consists in holy affections, which is one of his famous claims in the book on the religious affections. Thirdly, and here we return to some of the questions that we were looking at yesterday in the biblical material, the human person is unitary rather than composite. Unitary rather than composite. First of all, we're going to go to Edwards because he is really the pinnacle of reflection on this question, I think, certainly in that era. He strongly insists that the human person is not divisible into different faculties, okay? And I'll mention at different points how this echoes what we saw in the Old Testament and New Testament papers yesterday. I was greatly encouraged. I just breathed a slight sigh of relief, really, by the end of the day, um, that that I wasn't going to have to stand up and try and rescue Edwards because he was going to sound so thoroughly unbiblical um, after what you'd heard in the presentations yesterday. Actually, it seems to me there are remarkable Um, points where he is spot on, Uh, even though actually in the religious affections, which by the way is on the bookstore for just six pounds even though in here when he outlines his definitions he doesn't really for the definitions go to the biblical material it almost looks actually as if he's telling you what people commonly mean by these words, but his account of what we mean by these words and, and especially when he tends to focus on what we ought to mean by them, lines up very closely with some of what we heard yesterday. So, for example, and if you take up your diagram here, and diagram one, the top one, his preferred terms for the unitary person are the terms soul and mind. And we saw uh, in the New Testament paper yesterday that the terms suke and nous are often terms used to describe the whole person, unitary terms. Those are Edwards' preferred terms. So they denote the person as a whole. So so take that the circle represents the whole person and soul or mind denotes, denotes that whole person. Having said that, Edwards does believe in distinguishable faculties of the soul, but they are not to be understood as divisible components of the soul. So you can distinguish between them notionally, but you couldn't go and find one of them in isolation or separate them out. They are not uh, distinct substances. Rather, he says, they denote the one soul as it is capable of different kinds of activity. So that the understanding, his preferred term, that's interesting, isn't it? He spotted that mind, that noose, is a term for the whole person, and he uses the word understanding for what we might call intellect or something like that. The understanding is the faculty by which the soul perceives, speculates, discerns, views and judges. The inclination, the other faculty, is the faculty by which the soul likes or dislikes what it perceives with its understanding, approves or rejects it. When we talk about the inclination actually making a choice, Edwards says we tend to call it the will. So in the act of choosing, it equals the will. When it chooses an object outside of the self, hence the diagram, it's, it's the will in making a choice. Now that's it for Edwards. There is no third faculty. It's understanding and its inclination. No third faculty alongside or beneath the understanding and inclination, so that the affections, on which he's obviously so keen, are to be understood within that model, not as an additional component alongside it. In particular, they're not distinct as, for example, part of the lower animal aspect of the human person, which was how many of the medievals thought about them. You find that in Thomas Aquinas, for example. It's It's a slightly derogatory account of the affections Um, They're they're part of the lower animal aspect. No, 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 Edward says, the affections are just the will acting in a particular way. They are the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. So a heightened activity of the inclination is an affection. Now, I've tried to put that down in the bottom diagram where I add in the affections so that the inclination or will acting strongly is an affection. And uh, it might be something that propels you toward an object or something that propels you away from an object. It could be love for something or loathing of it. Now then, what's the heart? Well, the heart is the Whole person, interesting again how that lines up with the biblical voc- vocabulary, isn't it? Heart as this holistic term. The heart is the whole person in action. When the person is acting towards an object, the person acting with the full range of capabilities engaged, understanding, will, affections. That's the heart. Brad Walton, who has written um, a brilliant book on this. I I really, I mean, it's a shame it's so phenomenally expensive. Um, But um, it's here in the library. It is a really, I think it's an excellent piece of work um, comparing Edwards to the Puritans. Um, I spent days reading Owen, um, trying to work out what the points of comparison and dissimilarity are between Owen and Edwards. And then I found a sort of four page summary in Walton. um, and, And I think it got it spot on, actually. Um, and, and that made me think, wow, and he's got, you know, there are about 20 other Puritans in the book as well. Um, so it's a really good piece of work. He describes um, the heart, then, as the cognitive, volitional, affective complex, which I, I know you're going to want to use in your preaching as a description. Uh, let's, let's just look at it cognitive, the understanding, volitional, the will affective the affections complex all together that's the heart everything together all acting together understanding will and affections that's all he's saying now we find this understanding of the heart also anticipated in Owen he says the heart in the scripture is taken for the whole rational soul not absolutely but as all the faculties of the soul are one common principle of all our moral operations interesting there when everything's engaged together, Owen is saying. And uh, Owen describes how we would have worked in the Garden of Eden. So this is sort of a picture of the, uh, the ideal functioning. And it looks to me to be pretty close to what Edwards has in mind. He says, God created them all in a perfect harmony and union. All of these different aspects of the person. The mind and reason were in perfect subjection and subordination to God and his will. The will answered in its choice of good the discovery made of it by the mind the affections constantly and evenly followed the understanding and will the mind's subjection to God was the spring of the orderly and harmonious motion of the soul and all the wheels in it, so there you see a picture of a perfectly functioning person, everything working harmoniously now having underlined the agreement between Owen and Edwards I should point out it is at this point I think where Owen is unclear dare I say it, um, and Edwards is clear And Edwards has refined the position because it does seem to me, reading Owen, that he's a bit inconsistent on the exact location of the affections. For example, in his work on the Holy Spirit, I think he has a more fluid conception of the relationship between mind or understanding, he's not so careful about that term, and will and affections. Sometimes the affections seem to be part of the understanding, as distinct from the will, which he calls calls it the mind. But on other occasions, he can pair the affections with the will contrasted with the understanding. And sometimes he can even separate them off so they're off doing their own thing apart from uh, the mind and the will. It seems to me that that's, that slightly confused picture about where exactly they are in the person is, is resolved by Edwards. And so there is. When I say that they're in, they're in a, the same tradition, I don't want you to think that I mean that they're exactly the same on every count. I don't think they are. That's why I think Edwards makes progress on this question. Fourth proposition. That religious affections involve a new sense in renewed but not new faculties. A new sense in renewed but not new faculties. Here's the question. What changes when the new birth occurs? Does the person receive new faculties? Is the old understanding ripped out and discarded and a completely new one put in its place? Is the will removed? Well, Owen explains that when a person is given new birth, his faculties are not annihilated with new ones created ex nihilo. Rather, for example, the affections remain in their nature but are renewed by God's grace. He says, our affections continue the same as they were in their nature and essence. But they are so cured by grace as that their properties, qualities and inclinations are all cleansed or renewed. Now, of course, this is an example of a wider theological principle, isn't it? Um, Stated by Thomas Aquinas in a different context, grace does not destroy nature, he writes, but perfects it. Uh, There's an analogy here, isn't there, with uh, the resurrection body. Uh, There's an analogy with, I would argue, um, with, I think, the Reformed tradition, what will be the renewal, the dramatic cataclysmic by fire, but nonetheless the renewal of this earth. Um, when it is made into the new earth but even so that emphasis on continuity should not lead us to downplay the radical newness of the new birth any more than it should the radical newness of the resurrection body or of the, uh, of the coming uh, new earth the new birth is still radical newness so that even as Owen insists on continuity he also maintains it's essential to believe in a new principle at work in the believer. And it's very, very dangerous if you don't. He says, To deny such a quickening principle of spiritual life, an enlivening principle of spiritual life, superadded unto us by the grace of Christ, distinct and separate from the natural faculties of the soul, is upon the matter to renounce the whole gospel. Because, of course, if you don't have a radical new principle... Where's all this spiritual life coming from? (coughs) It's got to be coming from you. (laughs) And it can't come from you. That would be Pelagianism, to to ascribe it to your faculties. It's got to be a, a new, for want of a better word, injected principle. So there is a real emphasis on newness as well as continuity. Now, Edwards again says exactly the same thing on this point. He explains that regeneration does not involve the creation of a whole new set of faculties, but the creation of a new spiritual sense in the existing faculties. But again, he doesn't want to downplay the newness. When he talks about the new principle, it's very clear that it is a a deep change in the person. But the newness is new. The new sense is new that we have. And because it's not been seen or heard before, and because we were incapable of it, but it's the eyes and ears that already existed that have now been opened fifthly religious affections are not identical with what we call emotions now this is one of the most interesting questions I think in this whole issue of the affections and what they are it's the question that's most puzzled me and whenever I stand up and talk about the affections it's the question that always comes back I think and we may want to pursue it more in questions for Edwards the affections are the heightened inclinations of the will But what does that mean exactly? In particular, does he mean by affection what we mean by emotion? Now this is important. It's important for us in working out whether this book, The Religious Affections, is anything more at the end of the day than a defence of heightened emotionalism. Paul Helm, friend and brother Paul Helm, let's be clear, (laughs) thinks that that's all it amounts to at the end of the day, and he warns against the work. This is on his blog, Helm's Deep. He writes this. The Religious Affections is an important book, but in my view it would be unwise to take its teaching on what true religion consists in very seriously. It is a book about the importance of emotion expressed in a public, visible way being the measure of true religion. And Helm rightly points out that by contrast, the New Testament has a place for quiet, diligent, calm religion, which it certainly does. But I think he's wrong in his reading of Edwards here because I think he's wrong to identify what Edwards means by the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclinations and will of the soul with what Helm himself describes as self-consciousness and exhibitionism. Now the first part of his description there self-consciousness I think is accurate as a statement of what Edwards means by affection because Edwards talks about sensible exercises of the inclinations and will and sensible there doesn't mean the opposite of silly Um, it means, uh, well it denotes awareness I think consciousness of it so self-consciousness I think is an, an element of what Edwards means to defend when he defends the affections But really, I don't think that exhibitionism is. Because I don't think that Edwards equates affection with unrestrained public exhibitionism. Or what we might mean by the word emotionalism. For example, he's careful to draw a distinction between affection in general and the narrower passion. Here's what he writes. The affections and passions are frequently spoken of as the same. And yet, in the more common use of speech, there is in some respect a difference. And affection is a word that in its ordinary signification seems to be something more extensive than passion, wider in other words, being used for all vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination, but passion for those that are more sudden and whose effects on the animal spirits are more violent, and the mind more overpowered, and less in its own command. So it seems then that affection is a wider term that includes more than just the sudden, the violent, and the overpowering. I think what he's saying here is this, that yes, you can interchange these two terms, affection and passion. But as they are commonly used, there is an important difference. The difference is that affection is a wider term for all of the lively actings of the will, whereas passion is a narrower term which denotes suddenness, violence, and interestingly, the overpowering of the mind, leaving it less in its own command. That is not, therefore, Always a feature of affection. I think probably there's a distinction there. And passion may be closer to what we mean by emotion, I think. Especially when people talk about being in the control of their emotions. So I think there's a difference there. In an important passage, Edwards explicitly rejects the idea that you can correlate the extent of your true religion with the extent of your emotional state. Now the passage is significant in different ways and it is quite subtle at this point I think because Edwards is prepared to interchange the terms affection and emotion quite readily and that suggests that I think he doesn't mean by emotion quite what we often mean by emotion. But the passage is important because it shows us that really he's interested in the deeper stratum of affection rather than the transitory expression of affection. Here's what he writes. I think it clearly and abundantly evident that true religion lies very much in the affections. Not that I think these arguments prove that religion in the hearts of the truly godly is ever in exact proportion to the degree of affection and present emotion of the mind. For undoubtedly, there is much affection in the true saints which is not spiritual. Their religious affections are often mixed, All is not from grace, but much from nature. And though the affections have not their seat in the body, because they're part of the will, yet the constitution of the body may very much contribute to the present emotion of the mind. See how he interchanges emotion and affection there. And the degree of religion is rather to be judged of by the fixedness and strength of the habit that is exercised in affection, whereby holy affection is habitual, than by the degree of the present exercise. And the strength of that habit is not always in proportion to outward effects and manifestations or inward effects in the hurry and vehemence and sudden changes of the course of the thoughts of the mind. You see what he's doing here? He's, He's interchanging the terms emotion and affection, but he's saying what he's interested in really what matters, true affection, is not the state of the affections or emotions in any one moment. He's alert to the role that natural affection can have, that bodily uh, sensations can have. The frothy ephemera of the emotional or affectional life are not what matter, therefore. Nor is intense public manifestation, nor is momentary inward feeling. It is the underlying habit of holy affection that matters, Edwards is saying. And gracious affections are therefore marked by their abiding effects. Now Edwards is clear that the characteristic of true affection then is not its height, but its enduring depth. He writes, there is a sort of high affections that some have from time to time that leave them without any manner of appearance of an abiding effect. They go off suddenly so that from the very height of their emotion and seeming rapture they pass at once to be quite dead and void of all sense and activity. Do you ever do this? It is surely not wont to be thus with high gracious affections. They leave a sweet savour and a relish of divine things on the heart and a stronger bent of soul towards God and holiness. Do you see how here how Edwards is not... He's not distinguishing emotion and affection quite, but he is saying that the affection that matters, the true affection, the gracious affection, is the one that is deep-rooted and lasts. You can call it in his vocabulary emotion, but I don't think he means by emotion what we mean by emotion then, because for us, emotion is often transitory. The thing that matters in a gracious affection is its abiding So it seems to me he definitely doesn't mean by holy affection what we would normally mean when we speak of emotionalism or exhibitionism. And at that point I think Helm is wrong. Sixthly, religious affections are responses to the realities of the gospel. This is important, isn't it? This is particularly important in the life of the church. Religious affections don't just come from anywhere or from nowhere. They are responses to realities perceived through the word of the gospel. Owen oh, emphasizes, therefore, the sanctifying power of focusing on the cross. As to the object of your affections, he writes, in an especial manner, let it be the cross of Christ, which hath exceeding efficacy towards the disappointment of the whole work of indwelling sin. It's a lovely use of the word disappointment, isn't it? Or Edwards again tells us that God is supremely attractive, that he is seen most clearly in the face of an incarnate, infinitely loving, meek, compassionate, dying redeemer. Religious affections, true religious affections, then are responses to the realities of the gospel. Seventh, this is an interesting one, religious affections terminate finally on God himself, not his benefits. This is unusual, I think. Perhaps surprising when we first hear it, especially because Edwards puts it really forcefully. Put starkly, he argues that we are not to rest our delight in the gifts and benefits that God gives us, such as our salvation. Don't be delighted in your salvation. The first objective ground of gracious affections, he writes is the transcendently excellent and amiable nature of divine things as they are themselves, and not any conceived relation they bear to self or self-interest. Edwards, I don't think, means that the blessings we receive provoke or should provoke no affection from us. I think he means that the blessings we receive must carry us beyond themselves to delight in the God who gives them to us. So that the cross carries us to the God who sent his son to die on the cross and died on the cross. Edwards has a helpful illustration, I think, that shows how the blessings do evoke affection, but are not its terminus. He writes this, They whose affection to God is founded first on his profitableness to them, their affection begins at the wrong end. They regard God only for the utmost limit of the stream of divine good where it touches them and reaches their interest and have no respect to that infinite glory of God's nature which is the original good and the true fountain of all good. Now, as well as fountain, he has another helpful image, I think, that makes this point. He describes God's kindness to us, his benefits, in other words, as a glass, a mirror in which we see God's goodness. But we must see his goodness. And he has a wonderful way of putting this, a sharp warning, when he writes, a dog will love his master that is kind to him. Now Edwards explains that it is particularly the beauty of God's holiness on which true affection terminates. He draws this from the Psalms, for example Psalm 29 verse 2, Psalm 96 verse 9 and Psalm 110 verse 3. Now why single out holiness? Because he says it's God's holiness that is the perfection of his other attributes. This is a wonderful example of how our understanding of God's attributes must be integrated because of the simplicity of God you can't isolate any of his attributes and his holiness therefore is the perfection of his other attributes in which they are perfect for example I mean, he goes through a list of the attributes and does this but let me just give you the example of God's wisdom it is he writes that his holiness is the glory of God's wisdom that, is a holy, that it is a holy wisdom and not a wicked subtlety and craftiness yes do you see what he means If God didn't have holiness but had wisdom, well, he'd be a kind of evil genius. It would be a sort of scheming craftiness of wisdom. It's because he's holy and because all of his attributes are one in him that his wisdom is to be praised. And he goes through and shows you how that's the case with his other attributes as well. Now, Owen, as you read through Owen, could sound at points as if he's disagreeing with Edwards on this argument about our affections terminating on God himself. Let me give you a passage where you might think he's saying something different. He writes, They are but empty notions and imaginations which some speculative persons please themselves withal about love unto the divine goodness absolutely considered. For however infinitely amiable it may be in itself, it is not so really unto them. It is not suited unto their state and condition without consideration of the communications of it unto us in Christ. In other words, he says, you're mad if you think that you can consider God's goodness absolutely. You might think, is that saying something different about not having regard to God in himself? But I don't think it is, because actually he says exactly the same thing as Edwards was elsewhere. All all Owen is reminding us of when he says that is that we don't have direct access to God's being apart from his works. That's what he's saying. We we can't therefore regard God's goodness absolutely in itself. We always see it in the mirror of his deeds towards us. And therefore he agrees with Edwards that our love ultimately must terminate on God himself but it will do that via his works always epistemically we might say, God's acts come first. We we, we know God through his acts. Ontologically though, and this is the point that they're making, God's being is prior to his acts and therefore his being must be the ultimate goal of our love. Now that Owen too thinks this is clear when he speaks of how we love and know God. He writes, we love him principally and ultimately for what he is. It's the same as Edward's, isn't it? But nextly and immediately, for what he did. What he did for us is first proposed unto us, and it is that which our souls are first affected withal. Okay, do you see the point. Epistemically, it's God's deeds first. But because ontologically, God himself is prior, we must end up in loving him, but always through his works. Eighth affections must be universally renewed Owen teaches a a double universality in the renewed religious affections of the believer first of all there must be a universal subjective gracious renewal of all of the affections in a believer now he obviously doesn't mean a perfect renewal but just as total depravity touches and that's the point of it isn't it Not that we're all as bad as we can be, but that we're bad in every aspect of our being. Just as total depravity touches the whole of us, so all of our affections must be renewed. The whole person must be renewed. The whole person is changed in regeneration. Second kind of universality, he believes the affections must be fixed on all objective spiritual things in their due proportions. Edwards makes this point as well, that there must be a right proportioning of the affections to their different objects. He writes, in the truly holy affections of the saints is found that proportion which is the natural consequence of the universality of their sanctification. So, for example, what does that look like in practice? This will help explain it, I think. It's an argument against hypocrisy, really. Affections mustn't be hypocritically directed towards some while being entirely absent towards others. Some, Edwards writes, show a great affection to their neighbours And pretend to be ravished with the company of the children of God abroad. And at the same time are uncomfortable and churlish towards their wives. Maybe you've done this. And other near relations at home. And are very negligent of relative duties. Do you see the point? Okay, everybody's going to fall into this. But you can't be consistently, unrepentantly somebody who is only affected in a particular relationship and not at all in any others. That would be hypocrisy he's saying. Again, Edwards warns against a public-private disproportion. Some are greatly affected from time to time when in company, but of nothing that bears any manner of proportion to it in secret. So there must be universality. Again, not a sinless universality, but universality. Ninth and lastly and briefly, Edwards concludes that ministry must be designed to heighten the affections, and and I think we'll be going here increasingly as the day progresses and and maybe in discussion as well. Really, it's no surprise, given everything that he's said, that he thinks this. Edwards writes, such books and such a way of preaching the word and administration of ordinances and such a way of worshipping God in prayer and singing praises is much to be desired as has a tendency deeply to affect the hearts of those who attend these means. That fits, I think, very well with what Robert was saying at the end of his paper yesterday, that if the body matters, there's nothing wrong with thinking about the bodily aspects of the life of the church. Now, let me try to draw a few applications. And There are many, many avenues we could pursue. here. I'm just going to give you four briefly, the things that struck me, really. First of all, we should understand that our predicament will always be the predicament that both Owen and Edwards faced. It shouldn't be a surprise that Owen faced the same challenge as Edwards did, the challenge from rationalism. It's no coincidence. That dual pull of rationalism on the one hand and excessive enthusiasm on the other is surely a perennial problem. Where is the answer? Is, it, is the answer to aim for some kind of via media between the two? Yes, so, so I know I'm right when I'm not being like the rationalists on the one hand and I'm not being like the charismatic enthusiasts on the other. When my church looks like a, a kind of happy cross of those dull, boring churches over there and those excessively enthusiastic churches over there, I know I'm in the right place because I'm in the middle. No. <laughs> The answer is not simply to avoid the excesses of contemporary worship at its worst on the one hand and the repressed formalism of traditionalism on the other, nor is the answer to be as contemporary as we can be in order to draw in the young, or on the other hand, as conservative as we can be in order to flee compromise. None of those approaches, is right, both of those approaches are ultimately pragmatic approaches, driven by pragmatism, very different kinds of pragmatism, perhaps, but they have in common that they are pragmatic. Owen Edwards, I think, shows a better way, which is to think theologically about the questions that we face in the life of the church. uh, specifically, rather, their psychology reminds us of both the crucial role played by the understanding, as Edwards rightly calls it, on the one hand, and the importance of the affections on the other. We cannot be contented with dry orthodoxy or mindless modernity, not because we want to find a middle-average kind of way, but because both deny an aspect of biblical anthropology... One denies the understanding, the other, it seems to be, denies the affections. The errors of deadness and excess that different people commit are not errors of failed balance, but of failed theology, I would argue, specifically of failed theological anthropology. If we recall that all affection is reliant on understanding... And we will see the problems with music that is emotive but lacks theological content, for example. But if we recall that understanding must result in affection, then we will fear dry worship or worship which is musically out of touch with people and incapable of connecting to their affections As much as we fear enthusiasm, perhaps even more. Actually, interestingly, Owen at one point reflects on which he would prefer. And he says, I would rather have an excess of enthusiasm than its total absence in rationalism. Interesting. The test for a Christian hymn or a Christian song is not, therefore, its age or its style, I would argue, but its ability to focus the understanding on the word of truth and its ability to evoke affection in the heart that accords with the truth content of it. So that if our music is running way ahead of our theology, in in other words, if the music is way ahead of the words, it's no good, but equally, if the words our uh, words that describe realities that should move us, and our music is just dull and dead. It's no good either. Second application. I think there's a risk. There's a bit of a different application. There's a risk that our thinking about the human heart and affections, about psychology, is detached from the rest of our theology. So we do the theology and then we leave it long behind and come and do the psychology or the anthropology. What's great about the the first propositions that we took from Owen, I think, is that they connect our understanding of the human person to the very heart of our theology, our Trinitarianism. And we need to do that. Thirdly, I am personally struck by the challenge to delight in God himself, not just in his benefits. Am I a dog loving my master just because he's kind to me, rather than because he is himself excellent? It's made me wonder if we sometimes fall into a sort of superstitious talismanic relationship even to the cross. Not that we, I guess, make the sign of the cross or go out of our way to adorn our buildings with the cross. But perhaps we can so think of and speak about the cross as an object that we can forget that it is actually the Christ of the cross that matters. The cross is not love and mercy, Christ is loving and merciful fourthly and lastly I'm struck by the challenge to hypocrisy and the requirement of universal affections how easy it is to pick and choose those whom we will love how easy I think it is for a minister of the gospel to be interested, particularly interested in the useful members of the congregation to cultivate a relationship to invest in those who might offer the church something. I guess this is a particular temptation in a smaller church where it is very hard to find people to get it, who will get involved in the life of the church. We are then viewing people really not as an end in themselves or an end for the glory of God in themselves, but only as instruments to the pastor's or the church's ends. When is it that we seek people out and speak to them? Is it when we have something to ask of them? That is not the way of universal affection. Let's pray together and then we'll take questions. We marvel, Heavenly Father, that we are included in the intra-Trinitarian outpouring of love. We think of how extraordinary it is that you love us with the love that you have for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for this amazing inclusion in the divine life. We pray that you would forgive us for the poverty of our affections. We pray that you would create in us increasing affection and delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, a proportionate affection. Please forgive us for our hypocrisy, for the unevenness of our affections. Please help us to love as Christ loved. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.